My guest today is the Chief Operating Officer and Director of Research Operations at Decision Information Resources, a research and data collection firm. She's won several awards, including the TRIO Achiever of the Year Award and named by the Houston Business Journal as the Top 40 Under 40. Please welcome Dr. Sylvia Epps. Sylvia, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? I am doing fine. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, good. No, no problem at all. No problem. So let's jump right in there. Okay. What do you do? Let's see. Where, where shall I start? <laughs> so I am uh, the COO of a privately owned social policy research firm. It's located in Houston, Texas. It's been around 36 years and owned by an African-American man, small business. I've been there 12 years full-time, and prior to that, I was a consultant for three years. So I've worn many hats over my tenure there, first starting out as a consultant, then doing general research when I finished my postdoc. And I started out doing research and project management and realized or was pointed out to me that I had some leadership talent. And so I started moving into more leadership roles. So over the last five years, no, seven years now, I was first a unit director um, and then executive vice president. And last year I was promoted to COO. Great. Congrats. Thank you. All right. So how was that transition going from consultant to doing some of the research and the project management and now going to the COO level? Yeah, the transition has been easy. It's going to sound like the wrong word, but it, let me let me let me say why easy came to mind first. I say that because at the company we do contract research mostly for the federal government. Okay. Government says we need someone to evaluate this after school program, this workforce development program. We need someone to collect data for the survey that we're conducting across states. Um, and so our organization competes for those contracts. We write proposals to win the work. We win some work. We lose some, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then in my role, I was always leading the project. So I was either leading the staff in the company or working directly with the client to meet the demands of the contract. So everything that we do on any small project is a tiny example of what the entire company does across the project. So when I first started, I didn't realize this. I came from an academic environment. And so I was just used to just doing research that I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it, write about things I wanted to write about. And here is contracts. So it's client driven. The client tells us what they want. And we bring our expertise to it. But essentially, we're doing what the client desires. Mm -hmm. But what I learned quickly about the organization, which is why I'm still there, is that the owner felt very passionate about only saying yes to work, only going after work that aligned with his core values, his mission, the things cared about, and we care about similar things. So the work was always easy to do because it was something that meant something personal to me. And we do a lot of work with at-risk populations, hard-to-reach populations, low-income populations, to understand how to provide better services, how to meet their needs, as opposed to just deciding like here is a cookie cutter 
box, you go into this slot, you go into the slot. Like we really try to understand um, how to be effective, um, how the government can be more effective in terms of program service delivery. So, I mean, that's what I went to graduate school to learn more about. And so it has been an easy transition because everything that we do, every single thing that we do aligns with things that I personally care about. The hard part comes in just the, the people side, mm. both from the client side and then the internal side. Like you, in leadership and management, you spend probably more time, If I think if you're doing it well, you spend at least equal, but often more time managing the human side of what you do as, as an organization and, and in the work that we do, like, you know, it was full of humans, mm-hmm. lots of them. <laughs> and so we, um, that's been a harder part is me learning how to adapt and adjust to whoever is sitting across from me, which when you're doing research um, in an academic environment, you're sitting in front of a computer or leading a group of graduate students, you sort of set that tone and everybody adjusts to you. And that's not, that's not the case in leadership, or I should say effective leadership. You know, most uh, people don't adjust to me. I adjust to them. And when I started to embrace that, then I was like, oh, okay, I get how this works now. I have to understand what I'm adjusting. Who's walking in my door? It may be person A, but they may be being personality 12 with them today. Mm. And so that part of the transition has taken some time to get comfortable with and to become effective with but otherwise like it's really felt like exactly what I was supposed to be doing I just didn't know it when I walked in the door I when I went for my interview well when I finished my postdoc it was 2008 and the economy Mm -hmm. had crashed oh yeah right and so I was on the academic market I interviewed at that fabulous places and I didn't get offers and I didn't or, or some organizations or some universities just canceled their search. I think I had like five or six interviews. So I was like, man, this is amazing. I was, could have been in North Carolina, New York, Michigan, California. I wasn't planning to come back to Texas. And at the time I was in Boston. Right. And so I didn't get a job. I was like, well, dang, what am I going to do? Like, I, I, I have a life. I have responsibilities. And so I called Russell Jackson, who's the owner of this organization, the organization I work at, Decision Information Resources. And I said, hey, you know, you, you offered me a job two years ago when I graduated from grad school. Um, is that job offered still <laughs> on the table? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we're not trying to hire, but let's talk. And I said, well, well, I have time because it was probably April and my current contract was going to end in June. Um, and so I came down to Houston and I said, look, I really want to be an academic. I want to teach and do research, but I didn't get a job. And I, I like what you guys do here as an organization. You know, can, can I park here for a little bit? He said, sure. GIR has been an environment for people to kind of, you know, sort of a stepping stone sometimes. And other times folks are trying to figure out the research world. So I was very upfront, but I thought, and I tell people this all the time when I'm interviewing them or after maybe I've hired them, like, you should not tell the person who's giving you a job that's not even open, hey, I'm only going to stick around for a few years. Right. I was thinking. That was, <laughs> that was kind of foolish of me. 
but it, it is indicative of like why I think I'm still there and why it works with, mm -hmm. you know, why it has worked because it is an environment where we're very realistic about what we're dealing with and try to be open and honest about both, you know, not just what people's, what, what people like to do and what their plans are, but what their true passion is because we're small and research, if you don't like what you do in terms of research, you're, you're, you're just not going to be effective. You can get the job done. So we, we prefer to have people who, who want to be with us as opposed to those who need a job and a paycheck. Right. Um, so anyway, I, forget, I don't even know how I got on that part of this, uh, my start out there, but I did go in with this the idea of just being there for a few years mm -hmm. and 12 years later, like I, I'm, this is it. I will retire. Nice. I will retire from DIR. Nice. Wow. So. Okay. So sticking around temporarily and you're going to retire there. You're 12 years in and going to retire <laughs> there. And so, all right. Yes. So decision information resources, DRR, you mentioned we mostly work with the federal government, helping mm -hmm. with their efficiencies and things of that nature. What mm -hmm. other clients do you work with? Is it mostly nonprofits and foundations besides the federal government, corporations mm -hmm. or what industries, things of that nature? Yeah. So we do work with a lot of foundations. Major foundation partner right now is the Kellogg Foundation out of Michigan, but we're doing some work with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We've had some relationships with other, other foundations. We don't have any active work with, with others right now, although we are actively competing for some um, even some um, relationships locally. We have a partnership. We're not the direct client contractor, but we're working with the Kaiser Family Foundation in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In mm. those relationships, and I say partnerships, relationships, we are obviously the, they're our client and we're their contractor, but we prefer to work with folks who want to have us as a partner at the table, even though obviously they are in charge of the of the work and the contract. So I don't think of them as, as our clients in that way. So I will call them our partners. So in those partnerships, we are doing a lot of program evaluation. Um, you know, foundations have a specific focus or a particular area that they focus on. And so we are doing program evaluation, helping them with program implementation, implementation fidelity is, you know, are they doing what they intended to do? Is it reaching who it's intended to reach. Um, so that's the foundation side. And then we will do work with other companies like DIR. So we, um, we are a small fish in a, a pond, a big fish. Um, actually, the, Russell used to be the, uh, was a vice president at Mathematical Policy Research in Princeton, New Jersey, when he left the East Coast and came to Texas over 40 years ago. And so we are similar to Mathematica. People, people don't really know about DIR in the contract research industry. And so when they, they say how did, and I was like, who, this company is <laughs> Like, what do you guys do? It's kind of like a hidden secret. But I will explain to people who know the industry, oh, we're like a small Mathematica. So outside of the industry, that doesn't mean anything to, to folks, but essentially we will work with other companies that look like DIR in terms of research portfolio. So, and they're all over the place from, we have, we have clients in New York. Some of them are research think tanks. Some of them are nonprofits and some of them are 
privately owned research firms like DIR. And they range in size from, you know, smaller than us to thousands of employees in international offices. And in those relationships, we are often a partner on a larger project. And as a small business minority owned um, organization, when we are competing for federal work, um, the government will provide incentives to teams that have small businesses, minority owned businesses um, as a part of their team. Nice. And so, you know, part of our design is to stay small and minority owned because there are few of us in the industry in general. So that's important to make sure we want to make sure that that's that there, there are some representatives, you know, available to be engaged in, in some of these larger projects that we wouldn't be able to do on our own. We do do some work like at the state level, not just Texas, but we'll work directly with state agencies that not as much. And we do have an active contract with Houston ISD. It's kind of like a purchase order agreement. So if they need some services and they can reach out directly to us. We do have clients like that as well. Okay, great. All right. And now you mentioned the schooling that you've done. You've, you've been in school for a while. You got your bachelor's, your master's, and your PhD at UT, and you did your postdoc at Harvard, correct? Yes. So doing all that afterwards, what was that adjustment like getting into the corporate field? Were there any surprises for you? Yeah, there were a lot of surprises. <laughs> <laughs> The one thing about finishing a, a PhD program is that they, you are trained by academics who train you to be an academic. Mm-hmm. And that is not a criticism. It is a, a reality. Right. Um, that most academics have only been academics. You don't go do something else for five years and then go be an academic. Now, you know, some folks will do something different before they go to graduate school. But once they finish graduate school, they are... If they are an academic, their professor right, with a graduate program, they're, they've mostly been um, only in a college or university environment. So there's no preparation for what a non-academic environment looks like, how it's run, what it, just no expectations. And my graduate advisor, who I still have a relationship with, she said to me, you know, thinking at one point that I wasn't going to be an academic. I don't know what crazy thought I was having at the time, but I was just like, oh, I don't think I'm going to, you know, go down this road. And she was like, okay, well, you're going to have to find somebody to help you navigate that. Cause I'm, that's not, I don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I really appreciated because it, it did force me to pay attention in a different way as a consultant at GIR. So that was kind of my entree into what it might look like, but it was still, even as a consultant, it's very different. But I think the, the major difference is that I expected, so as an academic, I thought, okay, I'm going to be trying tenure, right? I'll be an assistant professor. I'll be trying to do research, teach students, do service. And at five or six years, I'll go up for tenure. And then another four or five years, I go up for tenure, you know, for full professorship. That's kind of how I saw that trajectory happening. But in contract research world, it's, it's not like that in terms of levels like you're going to do this for five years and then you can do this there there wasn't something comparable at, le- at least how i thought about it initially right. um but the intensity um is very serious um and i i will tell people who are you know they're trying to figure out if they want to do um 
went to corporate America um, in this in the research industry. What is it like? And I and I let them know like the intensity is surprising, and I think it's. I've learned that this intensity is driven by the fact that we are in a client-oriented customer service business right. where every part of DIR contributes to our customer service brand. And I did not realize that that was so important. I thought we're scholars, we do good work. If we're nice to people, then <laughs> like it'll work. I mean, I really was naive in that way. And I do think that that's true, but not everybody <laughs> um, approaches their professional life in that way. Um, so I think that was the most surprising thing is that the intensity and importance of cultivating your customer's brand, it's required at every level and in leadership and management, like, you know, that's a large part of our responsibility is making sure that our our clients' needs are met on time, within budget, and of high quality. Mm-hmm. I can say that in 15 seconds, but you know, I spend hours a day, um, every every day, making sure that that is the case. Making sure that our that the DIR brand um, is well represented. Now, I've tried to think about like, oh, um, what is how is this similar to an academic environment? And I. I have some friends who did go that route and said, so we'll kind of talk about our journeys. And the similarity is that, you know, the, it's intense in, an, in non-corporate environments for different reasons. So, you know, either going up for tenure, going up for, you want to go after promotion, you want salary increase. You, you know, there are lots of things that people are, levels that people are aiming for that are similar. But I think one of the things that, I, that continues to surprise me is that the corporate environment, the tone in the corporate environment really matters mm-hmm. in a way that if you aren't careful in tending to it, it could be, I mean, it could be detrimental, but it could definitely impact the, the morale of the organization in a way that really hurts your bottom line. And as a small business, we are a for-profit organization. We're not nonprofit. And we care obviously about the bottom line and ensuring that we have that we're, we, you know, we can have a profitable year, but not at any cost. Right. And so part of what we try to make sure we are doing is, is pouring back into the organization, pouring back into the staff in a way that the corporate environment, the corporate morale, the, that tone is strong. And when we sense that there are some problems, we, we stop and we try to tend to them because again, that's something I wasn't really expecting. If things are going well, like it's, the client, it will reveal itself mm-hmm. slowly, internally, and then bleed outside the organization. And that's not good when you're in a customer service environment. It's, it's okay to, you know, let people know that you're human and that mistakes are going to happen. But there are some that you, you, you can't make, you shouldn't make. And if you do make, you need to do some damage control. Right. So I think those are probably things that have been the most surprised. And... I think one of the things that was appealing to me when I first was thinking, oh, what do I want to do, you know, 15 years ago, I thought, oh, I can be my own boss in an academic environment. You know, I can, I decide what research I want to do. I decide what grants I want to write, what courses I want to teach. I can go to another university if it's not working out. I just kind of felt like that was a lot more flex, that created flexibility in a way that 
was important to me. And what I found is that in corporate America, like I have, I probably have even more flexibility than I would have in an academic industry and maybe, in, and maybe in even in other industries or organizations like DIR. And I think that's in large part because of who I am as an individual, like work-life balance really matters to me as an individual. If it's important for me, it's important for my team. And we, as a, our, the executive team, we sit down and decide like what kind of work we want to do. And there's some work and some clients that we, as, as Russell said, will say, all money ain't good money right. and <laughs> all clients ain't good clients. Mm-hmm. And so we do set that tone about like who we, who we want to work with, who we're not going to work with, how we're not going to be treated how we will allow our staff to be treated. Like we have some boundaries and parameters. I didn't realize you could have that kind of control. And I don't think I would realize that if I wasn't in executive management. Mm -hmm. I don't think the staff, I mean, I've tried to, we've tried to educate the staff so that they know that, that they realize that part about the organizational leadership, like what we are, are saying yes to and why we're saying no to some things. And why we won't go back down a road with particular client or contract type, because I feel like it's important for them to, well, I think it's a learning experience why we're saying no to something to understand that. But I think it's also important for folks to feel like there's something more to it than just the money right. that we are doing. <laughs> just it's a, if it's a part of our corporate mission for values like it should be clear people shouldn't have to know what our statement is to know what they are they should be able to see it and and it be a part of how we function as a daily organization yeah that's great that's great that you guys you live by that model or that mission statement and that and also good that you are able to be flexible in what you do Mm -hmm. and the intensity the customer service the tone in the corporate environment i get that and you can definitely see that you figured it out a director of research now, the COO, and Houston Business Journal's 2020 honoree for the 40 under 40. So congratulations on that as well. And talk about that a little bit. How'd you find that out? And just how'd you feel when you found it out? Yeah, so (laughs) I barely made the cutoff. This is my last year. (laughs) And, And actually, when the application was due, I was still 39. <laughs> but because of uh, the pandemic, um, everything was delayed. And so the announcement came, even I even find out about the, the final choice after 40. So we have a subscription to the Houston Business Journal. And Russell had mentioned to me that he wanted to nominate me to be a 40 under 40 honoree. And mentioned that a couple years ago. And then this year, he, he said, hey, I, I've submitted an application. You're going to get an alert and you have to complete like another part of the application. And I was like, oh, okay, when? Because I'm thinking, when can I fit this in? Like, <laughs> <laughs> what's it going to require? But anyway, so that's how I, he, I found out that he had submitted my name for consideration. And the application process where how it works is that then if someone submits on your behalf, then you have to complete kind of like a profile set of essay questions. It very much felt like a, like a graduate school application in some ways. I think there were like eight questions, 500 word limit each. And I thought, wow, this is a lot, but it was fun. It was cathartic to actually write, to respond to the questions because I had not, had not sat down, hadn't taken the time 
to pause and reflect in that way. Right. And at the end of, I think my last question was something along the lines of how do you see your story formulated? Something like that. And as I was writing, I was thinking, you know, you know, I feel like a winner already as I was fine tuning the last question in writing what was my truth, I was hearing ways that I had been inspired and helped along that had not, in, in, in the moment, it felt like status quo, you know, oh, like she's my advisor, she's my mom, he's my so-and-so. Right. These are things that I recognize and I knew that they weren't, that these things aren't given. People don't, not everybody gets these things or has these kinds of experiences. Over a course of like from starting college and filling out this application, that was a span of 20 something years. Yeah. Right. And so collectively in maybe like five pages of essays, I thought, wow, like I'm so glad that I was cognizant enough to know even in the moment the value of what I was getting along the way of help along the way and is always very thankful and thanking people. So I didn't like, I didn't finish and have to go back and say thank you to like 20 people because I had been doing it along the way. That was a cathartic process and writing it out. And so, but that was due like in March, right before the pandemic hit, I think like March 16th, I submitted those essay at March 13th, the essay questions. And like 10 days later, the city shut down. Oh Yeah. 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 And so, uh, I mean, they were supposed to make announcements like in April and, you know, I, was, I wasn't hearing anything. I was like, well, this is, I didn't get selected. I had, but I hadn't seen anything either. And then in October, maybe, maybe it was September. I got an email saying, congratulations. Welcome <laughs> to 40 under 40. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is exciting because I won't have a chance after this. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I haven't seen any 50 under 50. 600. I haven't seen any of those. Right. Um, <laughs> but it was it was fun to be able to um, still participate with the cohort. We obviously because of the pandemic, we didn't get to do like the the big celebration that they do. I think they do a big award ceremony. We did a virtual one, but I'm hopeful that that will expand some local relationships. Yeah. We don't do a lot of work work locally, so my local Houston professional network is pretty small. I have a much larger one with folks out, you know, in the industry and outside of the industry uh, across the states than I do in Houston. So I'm hopeful that that will create some opportunities just to have, you know, know some other young folks doing great things right. in Houston. Um, so yeah, that was that was fun. That's great. That's great, and hopefully it does open up new opportunities for you. And and that's awesome that during the process you were able to kind of think about those mentors and advisors and probably classes, professors, events that have kind of shaped your life or have been stepping stones to where you are right now. So good. Mm -hmm. That's great. Mm -hmm. Now, you you mentioned earlier about some of the responsibilities you have when you're a, a consultant and you know, in research and project management and things of that nature. But can you talk about the responsibilities you have now as the COO and just a typical day, what a typical day looks like for you? Sure. So right now I'm sitting at my desk and this is what I, I am at my desk for a, a solid eight to nine hours um, a day, mm -hmm. Monday through Friday. Um, and 
I probably have out of about 40, if I have a normal 40 hour work week, probably 30 of those hours are committed to meetings. This was true prior to the pandemic. The big difference is I was going to the executive conference room or having people come into my office. And so now I'm in Zoom all day long. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so 30 hours a week in meetings. And in those meetings, I'm either being briefed on something like, here's what's going on with this contract, or I am talking to my executive team or to my direct reports and research operations area and getting updated or we're brainstorming, problem solving, trying to navigate either a challenge with a client, a challenge with a a contract, a challenge reaching a response for a goal, what have you, a budget challenge. Um, I don't get to do any of the actual day-to-day research anymore. And I say get to do it because I feel like it's, like I've missed that. But sort of the, if there's a downside, I mean, there are downsides. It, It is a downside of being involved in some of the corporate management or being a COO, like I just cannot get involved in the weeds like I like to. Right. I like to, you know, I want to sit down with all of the materials at the across the boardroom table and just kind of brainstorm on all the details. And there's just no time for that at this point. So typically, and this is why I have to do so many meetings because because the team are off doing the work, and then I'm I'm being I'm brought in to consult to help them navigate a challenge or to give them advice or sometimes to make the decision on what we need to do. Mm-hmm. So half of my time is spent on project level challenges or things. And then the other half is on corporate management. And I try to do an even split because one, I have a desire to keep my finger on the pulse of the projects so that I can anticipate whether things are going well or not going well prior to sort of just being, because I, if I don't pay attention, then I might miss some early sign challenges that I can get a handle on before they become a challenge. So there's that side of it. But I also, I'm, I'm still young in my career. So I still have some development that I need to do in the industry and in my own scholarship so that I can you know, for lack of a better word, stay relevant as a project director. And then for the the contract side, I'm sorry, the other side, so corporate management side, again, just like contracts, keeping a handle on how things are going. How are people feeling? Are people feeling supported? Are people feeling um, heard? Are they feeling empowered to, to work through their own challenges? And I mean, at least one or two of my meetings a week are to kind of troubleshoot, problem solve with personnel challenges. Now, this year, for the last nine months, almost all of my corporate management has been on COVID mitigation, COVID management. We do have a call center in our Houston office um, where we have interviewers collect, uh, do conduct interviews over the phone using a computer assistive software computer technology and that can only be done in person for at least with our clients and um, for for the, the federal government did not allow us to do that research remotely that had to be done in our Houston environment for security reasons sitting behind a firewall quality control monitoring and reporting the phone lines so we had to find we had to figure out how to open how to get back open because we did close for two months 
you know, when the city shut down, we right. March through mid-March through the beginning of June, we opened back up. And that requires still six months later, day, daily management to keep the environment safe, to keep supplies. We have appropriate PPE um, for the people who are coming in every day. So we have about 30, 30 to 40 people come in every day, Monday through Saturday, and then a couple Sundays a month. So my corporate management has been mostly focused on COVID management. And for a while that meant, okay, I only had 10 minutes to look at the budget to get the budget update and then 30 minutes on X, Y, Z. And now we're getting to a place where it's a little bit more even, but my day consists of meetings all day long, making decisions, giving guidance on making decisions. And at the end of the day, I have decision fatigue. Yeah. You know, I don't want, I don't want to decide what we're going to have for dinner. I don't want, <laughs> I don't, I don't care. I don't want to make any decisions. Uh, I also have a third grader who I've been homeschooling this whole time. So I'm doing that while I'm also in meetings with clients and trying to make sure that I have, I turn the camera off before I make a, a face, like get yourself together right. or go on mute before I yell, get on task. But I do spend almost all of my time meeting with someone. I have very little time to just sit and read and write. I have to make time for it sometimes. Even on Christmas Eve, actually, I was trying to get a proposal out the door and I was doing some writing. Um, we were closed, but hey, we didn't finish it. So I had to, had to get it done. Um, but that's what my day consists of. High level thinking. I got it. I can't. What I've recognized about this role, and it took me some time to get there, is that I have to be fresh. I have to, I have to have be clear. I can't, I can't be effective in my job if I'm overly tired, not well rested, not eating well, because it'll either take me too long to kind of make a decision, or I won't be as informed because I can't take it all in. I mean, I'm a fast processor, but I, as I've gotten older, even though I'm recognizing I'm still a young woman, as I've gotten older, the mental capacity that it requires to do these things well, I have to be, I have to be, um, I have to be well. Right. Um, so I, that's why I don't, I don't give more than eight to nine hours a day because if I, if I do, it, it, it comes at a cost. Um, and, and most often that cost is like to my son or to my health. And, and I, re- I recognize if I give you guys eight to nine hours, you get really good, strong eight to nine hours. If I start going past that ninth hour, what you're getting is not any good to anybody. So I've set that boundary and I'm pretty strict with it. That's great. That's great, that discipline to make sure that you cut it off to make sure that you're as efficient as you can be. And that sleep is extremely important. You're right. That's something that I need to be more disciplined on as well. But yeah, that's good for you. Yeah, when you first asked me, like, uh, what time can we do this? She was like, okay, 9 p.m. I was like, 9 p.m.? Oh, no. <laughs> I am, like, turning over. <laughs> yeah, I need no, to work on that. <laughs> no. Well, I, I go to the gym at 5.30 yeah. In the morning. Yeah. So in order to, to get up and, and work out at 530 in the morning, I have to be asleep pretty yeah. early in the evening. So anyway, 
Yeah, that's good. Now, a couple of follow-up questions on that. So one, you mentioned you're continuing to develop yourself in this industry. So what resources are you using to do that? It's a great question. I mean, I think, let me just say, I need to be more deliberate and organized on that going forward because I have such little time left to give to myself in terms of working on my own scholarship. So there are a couple of things. I've been working with a couple of leadership coaches over the last several years. So that could be a strong leader, strong manager, makes me more effective in those hours so that when I do have hours, so that I can have hours left to do other things. So, and you know, Jonathan Sprinkles, yes. we were all at UT. So he's one of, been one of my coaches over the last couple of oh, years. And then Jean Ladding, a retired University of Houston professor. I've been working with her maybe like six or seven years. So that's sort of the management leadership side. And then for uh, my research interest in both continued development in the industry, so there are a couple of things I need to do. One is read. And that's very hard to do, like in, in terms of, you know, making time. I used to say I need to put times on my calendar where I'm block, it's blocked off and I'm just reading. Well, right now with homeschooling and yeah. that's impossible that, right. you know I'd have to do that in the evenings after work and that's not the first thing I decide to do when I'm when I'm done with my work day but reading but I do go to I haven't this year but I typically attend research conferences I would attend three a year obviously I didn't do any of that this year I, I prior to 2020 the pandemic I should say I traveled a lot I was probably gone at least two to three times a month. Okay. Um, and I don't think I will ever, ever travel like that again. Um, I think the world will be different everywhere after, yeah. you know, things go back to somewhat normal after the pandemic. But those travels were to conferences. They were to connect with clients, do sort of brainstorming think sessions with my clients and sometimes just with other researchers. We are involved, are becoming involved with the Center for Cultural Responsive Research and Evaluation. And so that's a smaller circle and it's a, it's really focused on ensuring that they're culturally responsive principles that are a part of the, both the conversation, the planning, the implementation, analyzing, writing that we do. And so I've decided to, to use that resource more deliberately because it kind of, it covers a lot. It checks a lot of boxes in that small circle. Yeah. Um, typically, you know, I would be doing, trying to do some writing, doing some, some independent research projects. And I have just had to accept that I just don't have time for that. Cause it, I, it would not happen. It took me seven years, I think, to publish my dissertation <laughs> because I was having to do it in and around all the other responsibilities. So I've tried to find ways to, to make it happen during like a work day. Mm -hmm. um, because like I said, I'm, I'm unwilling to give, you know, to, to let go of balance so that I could develop that part of my, my scholarship. And, and really it's out of a desire for me to continue to grow and learn. It's, I'm requiring it of myself. My boss isn't requiring it of me. The industry isn't requiring it of me. I mean, I think you know, I've, I've paid my dues, but at the same time, 
I find that it's important to be always have a learning mindset. And because there's enough of there's enough work for me to do doing that, if I don't make it a part of my party, then it's not, it's just not going to happen. And it keeps it fun for me because I get to do some problem solving and thinking in ways that I just wouldn't naturally do um, the other part of my regular job. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now talking about problem solving, just listening to you, it seems like problem solving, communication, teamwork, being inquisitive, your leadership skills are, are certain skills that seem like are important with, for what you do. But what skill sets and characteristics would you say are most important to be successful in your line of business? Hmm. Huh, that's a good question. This is one of the questions I don't have to think about often because I'm usually asking the questions like this. <laughs> um, you know, I think besides like the typical ones, like you got to be determined, driven strong communication, oral and written, like those things, sort of the common ones you need to have to be successful in anything that you do. I think you have to have a a willingness and a curiosity. Mm. I think we come across some really smart people. You and I are really smart. We went to college with really, everybody was really smart, right? We wouldn't be at UT and doing the things that that we're all doing if we weren't. But I know some really smart people who are just willing to learn, unwilling, who are unwilling, either unwilling to learn, unwilling to think outside of the box, um, it's unwilling. And that's just not, I can't work with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, I can work with someone who has zero skill and at a particular programming language, they have a willingness to learn the programming language. And then we got, we can go. I got Mm -hmm. it. So a willing attitude is really important. And then the curiosity, I think it kind of goes hand in hand because a sense of curiosity to me means that you are willing to learn again, willing <laughs> that you have a desire to keep learning. You want to be thoughtful and methodical and logical in in your approach. And it also means that you recognize that you may not have all the answers or the final answers, but you have a, a curiosity to, to ask the questions to, you know, to help push the whatever along, mm. either the research problem, the corporate problem. Sorry, my dog is barking and it's uh, driving me. It's driving me insane. Uh, I did a I did a crazy thing and got a COVID puppy as I. <laughs> I think we we're about to do the same. So. Don't do it. Tell Nat, Tell Natalie to- not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But I think I think those are two key things. Like you just said a willingness and some curiosity and, okay. you know, management, corporate management research is not for everyone. I mean, we all, we all do different things, but I feel like some of the things that it ha- I feel like I could take my skill set into another industry and be effective if I had a willingness and a curiosity. Right. Right. You know, because all the other things are kind of there it, it, or at least there's enough of them there. And with those two things, I can kind of push a boundary, get over a, you know, a hurdle. Yeah. All right. Makes sense. All right. Now, with what you do, you're in academics for a while, but it seemed like this is a good match. It was definitely a good match for you because of your passions and what you're doing and your experiences that you have, your educational experiences that you have before it. So can you talk about just what you love about what you do? Sure. 
So I wrote my dissertation on the impact of organized after-school activities on child well-being. And I did that because I felt pretty strongly that my success, even at that point, was due to my involvement in a lot of after-school activities and people pouring life into me and saying, wow, Sylvia, you're, you're, you're good at this. Did you think about this? Have you tried this? X, Y, Z, all those kinds of things. And so when I went, when I went to graduate school, I was thinking like, what is going to be my research topic? What's my question? What's the fire in my belly? And it was really about trying to understand how to help people. I mean, at a very basic level, (laughs) help people. And so at DIR, everything that we do is really, that's one of the guiding questions. So whether it's workforce development, whether it's understanding how a new curriculum is, you know, focused on reading, a reading curriculum is impacting low-income children, early education, how to make sure that it's reaching the people it needs to reach, that, that they're getting their needs met through the, through the intervention. And then we also do data collection for the Department of Labor for their Job Corps program. And Job Corps is all about getting students skills and training so they could go get, you know, have an effective career. We're doing a research project with the Kellogg Foundation, which is the one project that I get to dig, dig, dig deep into, and it's on racial healing and transformation. Mm-hmm. And it's about, you know, breaking down this, this hierarchy. Um, and I don't think that it's, you know, we're not going to make the progress in my lifetime that I like to see towards racial healing and truth telling and, and, and transformation. But I hope that my son and his children and his grandchildren will benefit from the progress that we make, you know, during my generation. And on that project, you know, I've traveled 14 different communities from Alaska to Richmond, Buffalo, Dallas, Chicago, places in several places in Michigan. And just he, learning how, how they are helping their communities heal from generations of racism. And, I, and I'm there just, I'm there as an evaluator. And I'm like, I'm here as an evaluator, but I am a black woman. I am a black woman, black mother of a black son. Like I, I have that hat on before I have on my evaluator hat sitting at that table because what you're doing in Michigan, what you're doing and Dallas is is going to create a better environment for my son in Houston. That's what I love about it, what we do. It's like everything that we do is focused on trying to make something better for somebody. And a lot of the work that we do focuses on people of color. I mean, because of the history of this country, there are a lot of things that have been done that have made things hard for people of color in the past. So now when you're talking about social programming and, and at-risk populations and low-income populations, those are people of color. Right. And that's why I'm still at DIR 12 years later. And that's why I will, I will retire from DIR. I will own it at some point. So I'll, I'll not just retire from it, but it, it, will, it will be part of my legacy. And that's why, because it, everything that we do really focuses on making sure that 
we're helping folks. And we do that as an organization for our staff, not just for the people who are part of the projects that we get contracts on the research. Well, great. That is great, everything that you're doing. And you mentioned the next generation that hopefully they'll see a lot of this progress that you're making. And and I'm sure uh, you can see the youth and just Mm -hmm. how involved that they are in a lot of these programs. And just, it's amazing to see just the marches, the protests, Mm -hmm. whatever, and just seeing the youth and just how diverse that youth is and how involved they are. So I I definitely see. Yeah, and we didn't, you know, RJ, for us, like we didn't have to be as involved when we were that age. Right. Because our parents, you know, we were riding on our coattails. Right. And it's not that things were so much better, but things have just gotten so much worse. Yeah. And it, it is very inspiring to see the youth show up and vote, show up and protest peacefully. Yeah, it, it's been a hard year and a lot of a lot of sadness in the last several years. But some of the good that's come from that is seeing how folks are coming together in a yep. way that they probably wouldn't have. Yep, yep, definitely. Now you, you can see your passion in this and everything that you you all do. So I'm guessing it has to be extremely difficult for you, or I'm guessing it's, it's uh, difficult for you to now where you're you're less hands on. And I know you don't have the time you mentioned that, but it, it has to be difficult, I guess, for you, I'm thinking, to be hands off and to make sure that you are hands off and let someone else take yeah. over to do it in the day to day operations. Yeah. Were you a part of my performance review just now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's something that we talk about, Russell and I talk about. Um, and I've gotten at being hands off. Um, over the last several years, but it really was because I had to have some balance in my life. But it, it is difficult, but at the same time, I'm proud to be in the seat where I can watch other people take off and, and go. That's great. And that they will say, hey, can you help me think through how to write this email? You know, I'm just like, sure, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> and there are other folks who say, oh, she doesn't have time for that. And I'm like, well, you, I decide what I have time right. for, number one. <laughs> number two, that five-minute conversation, that 15-minute Zoom chat, I may be helping someone do something that may seem small to them, but it means so much more to me because I'm being brought into, like, folks are seeking out my input where in my role, I'm often at the table inserting my input because that's my job. Like I've, I have a global position where I'm sitting across multiple units, multiple projects, multiple clients. And I'm saying, okay, here's what we need to do for the good so that all of these things work together. And because of my ascendancy in the organization, you know, for the people you know, I'm the manager of what used to be my peers who I used to sit at, you know, happy hour with after work and uh, just hang out. And you can't do that in the same way. Right. We're in corporate management. Russell told me last year we had a Christmas party and it was at the Buffalo Soldiers Museum. We had a live DJ and we were just dancing. Everybody was out there having fun. He said at my performance review, he said, you know, I felt like you were like trying too hard to be the life of the party. 
And I said, no, I'm just like the party. I like to have fun, like to let my hair down. Eight to five, I am COO, I'm Dr. Epps. But I, I know how to have fun. I mean, we all, we went to UT. We had fun at school. We did our, we went to class and we right. did, we finished, but we also had a lot of fun. I mean, so I know how to do that. And he, he says, well, you know, I just want to make sure you understand the pedestal you're on. And I just said, well, and I, I received feedback, but initially I was just like, well, you know, what are you really trying to say to me? Um, but I needed to hear it, hear it. And I needed to hear it from him because my family puts me on the pedestal. That I don't like, I re- that I reject. I'm like, I, I, that's not how I see myself. And they don't do it in a way that's to, it, it's all from a place of love. But for me, I'm like, no, like all my cousins went to college. We all graduated. We all got good jobs. We all, we're all doing well. So I don't, you know, I don't feel like putting me on the pedestal. I don't, I just don't like that. Right. So I naturally reject that in all, all situations. And so he says, you know, whether you like it or not, you have been elevated to a pedestal. So you're there. And so you need to embrace that in a way where you strike a balance of understanding of the people. And I thought, really? Mm. Initially, I hear the message, but I think it was really important for me to hear that because my ascendant in the organization has been with people who were my peers from day one. And I, you know, I appreciate him so much for being willing to tell me that because most some people won't tell you that. Right. People won't tell you what, what they know you need to hear for many reasons. But I really appreciated that message because it forced me to, to embrace, it, it forced me to embrace the reality of not just what my day-to-day job means to the organization, but then what it means, like what it should mean to me, like, yes, like this is, this is a big deal. And it's not that I wasn't taking it seriously. And it's not that I was out there to dance, dance for, you know, being crazy or anything. Um, but it was at a time where unbeknownst to all of us, we're going into a pandemic and, and it created the space this year has created a platform and a space for me to really develop in this role and at a very, very important time for the organization. And so I just, I really appreciate that it has, even with all the challenges that 2020 has, has brought, like it, we were ready. We were ready as an organization. We were, I was ready as an individual. People say in Houston, we've lived through hurricanes and X, Y, Z. And so, you know, we were prepared for a pandemic. I'm like, no, 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 no. Nobody was prepared for this pandemic. Nobody was prepared for this pandemic, but one of the great things that I appreciate about DIR, we call it our secret sauce, is sort of navigating through adversity. Um, we know how to do it. And I think part of the reason that we know how to do it is not just because of like Hurricane Harvey and Ike and all those other things like that, that throw a wrench in hands and sometimes businesses don't make it out the other side of it. But I feel like as an African-American, my parents taught me I had, you have to try harder than your white counterpart to get the same accolade and sometimes they don't even get recognized and dir is 70 percent minority 70 our organization is 70 percent people of color and so i think that that is a driving mindset that benefits 
this whole organization yeah. for the greater good. Like we, you know, what else you got? You, know, you throw a pandemic at me. What else you got? It's kind of right. like what I'm thinking about. Okay, we made it through that. I mean, we we were closed for two months. I forgot what your question was, RJ, but I just got to say this. No. <laughs> we were closed for two months. Yeah. Every we sent everybody home. We sent our call center home. Sixty people. I called them. I said, I think I got to lay you guys off. And I, I was crying at the end of the seven o'clock at night when the, the city said you have to close, you don't, we don't qualify as a business that can stay open. I have to send you home. I had to get on the phone seven o'clock at night. It wasn't, it was, thank God it wasn't by camera. It was just a conference call. And I was just sobbing through this phone call. And I'm telling people who I know have bills to pay, we have to send you home. I met with the management team the next few days and we figured out how we could keep them paid. And we paid them this for, to be at home for two months wow. at their premium salary that they only get by working on this federal contract, but we covered that. And then we brought them all back and we've been, we have not shut down since we opened back up. We've had two COVID cases at our office, but no spread in the office. Um, really strict procedures to make that happen. Um, but we've kept the doors open and we've won new contracts. We're going to finish the year in the black. Um, and we have, we are still submitting bids for new work. So I'm just like, no, what else you got? Like we, we're, we're ready for this. Yeah. And I was, I think just this week I was reflecting on like part of the secret sauce. And I think that's a part of, uh, that's a part of it. Like we have this mindset of, okay, we have to roll our sleeves up and figure this out and work hard hard as hard harder and often not for the same accolades but it, because that's what we've been doing all our life it feels like normal so so definitely it's that it's that mindset but it's also the leadership so kind of toot your own horn on that part as well you and russell who seems like a, uh, a good mentor for you as well from some of the things that you've said so great leadership as well yeah um, thank you yeah, no, and that's great. That's really great that you're able to keep everyone on board during those times. That's very commendable. So very good. Thank you. Thank you. No, you're welcome. All right. So now you mentioned some of the challenges like COVID mm -hmm. and a little challenge for you was just being able to stay away from the day to day. But what challenges are out there for you in your position and in your role? I think one of the biggest challenges is, is recruiting Good talent. Mm. We have people who their only job, their only professional job has been DIR. So you have several people who've been there 20, 25 years. But I think the average tenure of the staff there is like 12 to 13 years. Wow. Says a lot about the company. So, you know, we, we, when people come, if it fits for them, fits for us, then, you know, they don't, they don't leave we appreciate but you know as we we've grown when I started in full-time in 2008 I think I was like the 26th employee 26th full-time employee now we have over 50 and we have an office in DC and we have people in other places that work uh, remotely but when it comes down to like recruiting like I need to replace me I can't continue to be the director of research operations and COO and eventually CEO so one of the biggest challenges is, is recruiting talent that fits into our culture, our, the culture of our organization. Russell has been lucky to have people that he's 
able to cultivate and bring, you know, nurture along the way, myself included. But that's a big challenge. And, I, and it's a challenge that's real for me right now because I really need to start, you know, <laughs> I need to start recruiting and finding uh, the next director of research operations at a time where we're still trying to figure out what we're going to look like in the next five or six years as an organization. I think the other challenge is just that we are, you know, we are a contract research firm. And we've been, since a lot of the work that we do is the federal level, we're now going into a year, this happens every time there's a change in party. We're going into a year where there's going to be a lot of uncertainty at the federal government level, just simply because there are programs in the current administration that will continue on under the new administration, maybe with different leadership, but the money is already committed. And so they'll have to negotiate like what are going to be the priorities, whose idea is going to win and how that matriculates down to the federal agencies and then how they put out money for their initiatives. So frankly, when the, the Democrat is in the White House, the, the kind, because of the kind of work that we do around social programming, there are a lot more opportunities for us to do federal work when there is a Republican in control. So the last four years from that perspective, in terms of federal work, you know, it's been pretty slim pickings. We have major work with the Department of Labor, which is why we still have a good mix of federal work. But we had a pretty good variety of, uh, in terms of our federal portfolio when Obama was in the White House for eight years. And so that's really changed. I mean, we let's say our diversity was like, you know, 50% uh, federal work um, across like multiple, that 50% was across multiple agencies. Now it's like across one or two agencies. So we expect that to change it's going to be a while before we actually see that change. Um, so that's, that's a challenge we know going into every time there's a change in political party. And now just with how things are going at the federal government, it's just so unpredictable still to know like when we're going to see the other side of that. Right. Um, that creates space for us to diversify our portfolio and, and more, you know, non-federal clients, but that still is less certain than some of the federal level work. And I think navigating a corporate culture in the world that we live in today is just difficult. The racial tensions across the world don't, you know, we're not, we're not immune to them. We have to deal with them as well. Just because we're mostly minority doesn't mean that we don't have challenges within our organization. We, we do we have to figure out how to talk about race, how to make it comfortable to talk about race. Uh, we have to get comfortable talking about race. I tend to be comfortable. I've had to learn to us now I tend to do it, but I've had to learn how to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I, I've done that, but now getting my organization to do that is, is a challenge that I see as necessary. Like I, I, I can't avoid it because it's a part of who we are as an organization, but also to make sure that we are effective in the work that we do, we have to get that right. Yeah. Makes sense. So, so those are some of the major challenges I, I foresee. Um, and we've been around long enough to understand the ebb and flow of like how how, how to deal with the down like a downturn in terms of you know the industry and you know Russell has been very smart about how you manage the business through downturns and then the upswing on the other side. 
but we're transitioning like to, to my leadership and he wants to retire at some point. And he probably would have already had it not been for some of these major things in the last several years. So yeah, I see that as also as a challenge, just the transition that the organization is going through with the change in leadership, you know, how we're going to look on the other side of that remains to be seen. But I think I recognize that it's, it's going to be, it, it will be a transition. So. Okay. So the political risk and trying to diversify your clients and your portfolios mm-hmm. and, uh, because of that, just talking about uncomfortable situations at your business so to be able to grow mm-hmm. and transition your organization or the transition your organization will be going through. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what about uh, memorable moments? Do, do you have a memorable moment or memorable moments that stick out in your career? Um, yeah. So we did national evaluation of TRIO, um, Upward Bound. And I was the project director of that project. And I was also a participant in Upward Bound in the 90s at Wiley wow. College. And I recall presenting like the final results of that project to the Upper Bound community in DC for like 2000, I don't know, 13, 14, somewhere around there. And I was just like, you know, it's kind of a full circle moment to be the mm-hmm. national evaluator of a program that exposed me to college life when I was 11 or 12 years old in my small town in Marshall, Texas. So that was very memorable. And then fast forward to this year, I was named Trio Achiever of the Year 2020. I think it's, I forget what the title is, but a Trio Achiever um, for Texas. And I thought, wow, another full circle moment for me in that, again, this 20, over 20 years ago, I'm I'm a participant in in a social program that was designed to help not just help students, you know, you know, get to college, but it exposes, it increases their exposure to what college and uh, higher um, academic achievement can do for you. You know, it works. It, it, I know the program works and I'm like, yeah, look, it works. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was really exciting. So those are two memorable moments. And another one is just have to do with when I was promoted to executive vice president, that was 2015, I believe. And when it was announced to the organization. So Russell and I have been talking about this for some, for a while and other folks were, some folks were aware of it, but it was, it wasn't a surprise that I was being promoted because folks kind of were seeing this, they were, you know, making assumptions and seeing, you know, some clues or whatever, but I don't think people were like, oh, it's really going to happen. You know, this is really happening. So and when it was announced, everyone was, you know, they were just, they were a lot of congratulations. They were very happy. It was genuine, very authentic. So that was memorable for me because to me, that was me getting tenure. Right? Right. It was like, I've achieved <laughs> full professorship, right? With my peers who now I'm their supervisor and they're excited about it. You know, they're <laughs> not leaving. Now a few of them did. <laughs> but most people, you know, like to me, that was, that was very telling that, yes, this is, this is the environment for me. Like, you know, I've made this transition with my peers. They are excited about it. They're sticking around and they're rolling up their slate saying, how can I help? What can I do? Yeah. Um, so those things stick out. That's great. 
and getting your tenure. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I got my tenure. Great, right. <laughs> that is great. So, Sylvia, we're at the end of this interview. Okay. I want to head over to this quick hitter session where okay. I'm going to be asking you questions for fun for people okay. to get to know you a little bit better. But before I do that, is there anything additional that you would like to talk about or anything you might have felt like I left off asking you? No, I, 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 I think you've covered like the you've covered it. <laughs> what do you do? Like, it's hard for me to tell people what to do just outside the industry, but I think this is a, a longer conversation instead of the, the two minute elevator speech about right. what you do, but it's been nice to reflect on it from this perspective. So no, I, I appreciate it. All right. Great. That's great. All right. So let's head to this quick header session. Okay. So first question, what's your favorite sports team? <laughs> uh, the Texas Longhorns, come on. All right, all right, uh, hook them. <laughs> hook them. <laughs> Favorite movie or show? Favorite movie, Coming to America. Oh, yeah. You ready for part two? Yes, I haven't watched the trailer yet, but, <laughs> I, yeah, but I'm ready. Yeah, all right. Favorite musical artist or group? Ah, oh, man, favorite musical artist. Right now? No, Lauren Hill. I got it. I can't just go right now. Lauren Hill. Yeah. Lauren Hill. Yep. Favorite vacation spot? Hmm. A beach. Somewhere on the beach. And favorite food or drink? Okay. I'll do drink first. Margarita. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, And food. On the rocks? Frozen. Okay. Frozen. Frozen margarita. All right. And food would have to be Mexican food. All right. Any particular restaurant? Um, right now, it's probably uh, Lupe Tortilla. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 I used to be Chewy's when we were in Austin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sylvia, just want to say this is great. Everything that you're doing and everything your company's doing, just helping with all these social programs, all the help that you're doing for people, helping people meet their needs from the at-risk, low income, early education, all over, across the board, everything that you do is great. And then your accomplishments, the TRIO Achiever of the Year Award, being a 40 under 40, all that you've done and accomplished. I just want to say congrats and all that too. And thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. Thank you, RJ. I appreciate the invitation. This has been great. I think what you're doing is great. And it's going to reach an audience and an ear that's going to change somebody's life. You may not ever know it, directly, but it's going to happen. Thanks so much for that. The way things work. Yeah. Uh, it means a lot. Thank you so much. And is there a way that people can reach out to you to learn more about what you do or what your company does, or if they have any questions? Sure. I'm on Facebook, easy to find on Facebook, Sylvia R. Epps. I'm on LinkedIn. And then our company website is dir-online.com. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right, RJ. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.